Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that is always way too nervous and way too awkward to attempt a good flea market haggle. I'm your host, Amanda. I can't believe this, but this is our 25th full-length episode. That's not including our minisodes, so really we're at more like 28, and you know, it makes me feel like I'm really doing something. As some of you longtime listeners know, I lost my job as a buyer for a big clothing retailer due to the pandemic, and it's been super scary, but also super exciting. In a few days, I'll be leaving Philadelphia and making my way to Amish country in Lancaster County. Working on Clothes Horse costs me a lot of money. There are hosting and recording fees, subscriptions to various publications that I need for research, and I'm literally shipping my microphones around the country for our various guests. So shout out to the USPS for supporting Clothes Horse by getting those microphones delivered as efficiently as possible in this super weirdo time. I work on Clothes Horse seven days a week, usually for eight to 10 hours each day. I mean, I'm super committed to it. I'm really passionate about it. And, you know, it's also kind of like a quarantine, right? So may as well do that and not watch Netflix. And you know what? There's no shortage of stuff to do. There's research, emails, recording, editing, Instagram, and, and so on. And I tried to keep track of this. And I realized that a typical episode of Clothes Horse requires about 20 hours of work. Yeah, two zero. It's crazy, right? For one episode. But you know what? want to do the best job that I can. So once again, I don't have a job. I'm trying to work out some ways to cover my expenses and pay for at least some of my time. So one option is a Patreon. And I would love to hear what all of you think about that. I have mixed feelings, of course, asking all of you for money. But then again, I am working for free right now. Should I offer bonus episodes, a weekly newsletter, a shout out on the pod, trinkets of some sort. It's it's kind of a hard puzzle for me to piece together because I'm trying to be really mindful of sustainability. So I'm not going to start offering merch on sites like Podswag because I don't want you buying clothing that you don't need. And I also want to be able to control the ethics of the manufacturing of whatever it is I'm selling you. So it's just on my mind. I want to do it right. I'm also considering ads, but not the generic sort of ad options that are offered to podcasters. For one, a lot of big brands out there that actively use podcasts as ad space, are, they're kind of sketchy and their values don't align with Clothes Horse and I don't want to compromise that. Furthermore, there are so many rad designers, makers, and vintage sellers out there that are doing super cool stuff that don't get to have a lot of exposure because, you know, it's expensive. So I was thinking about inexpensive ads for people like that. I know you listeners want to give your money to good people, so it might be beneficial for everyone. I would love to hear your thoughts on these ideas, or maybe you have an even better idea. So please drop me a line via email at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com or send me a message on Instagram at clotheshorsepodcast. The bottom line is this. I love making clothes horse. After years and years of just like, WTF am I doing? I finally feel like I'm doing something that does something good for the world. I meet all kinds of incredible people. I learn so much every day. And you know, I've been stressing for years and years about what the fashion industry was slash is doing to this world and the people in it. So 
I'm excited to be breaking down that mystique and lifting up new thinkers and, you know, changing some minds out there. My stepmother, Karen, who is super fucking rad, by the way, told me that she's not letting my dad buy any more polyester shirts. And you know what? That felt like a major victory. So I want to keep this going, but I can't do it without you. Okay. Well, that must be what it feels like to be one of those hosts slinging for NPR during the pledge drive. So I guess now I have to stop being grouchy about it the next time it happens. And by the way, for all of you who are wondering, I listen to KCRW, that's the LA NPR station every day because it's my favorite and I love what they do. So maybe you want to check out KCRW as well. Okay. So enough of that. Let's talk about today's episode. I'm going to be joined by my good friend and mega vintage expert, Christine. She's based in Portland, Oregon, and she's been selling vintage for a really long time. This is either part one of two or part one of three. And as you know, sometimes I just don't know until I finish editing the whole thing. And we have a lot of content, so I'm still piecing it together. Today, we're going to be talking a lot about what it means to sell vintage for a living, like as a job, how it works, where you source, the challenges of paying yourself a living wage. And this one is a big deal to me, how to negotiate, aka haggle with vintage sellers. I never do it because I can't stand rejection and I live in fear of making someone feel bad. (laughs) But... I think it's a valid part of the experience that I really need to work on. And Christine has some advice for us. Before we jump into the convo with Christine, I wanted to break down three adjectives that you have seen thrown out there when we talk about buying, quote, older things. So the first is antique. So (laughs) when I was a kid, someone, I think it was probably one of my weird uncles, uncles being in quotation marks, down at the VFW, (laughs) This person told me that anything over 21 years old was considered an antique. Okay, are you laughing at me right now? I realize now that was probably a misogynist joke about women over 21 being ancient, but I missed the joke there because, you know, I was like eight. (laughs) And so for like my whole life, I've been thinking that anything over 21 years old was antique. And I mean, to be fair, it seemed like a low threshold It seemed like an arbitrary number, but hey, I don't make the rules around here, all right? So actually, anything over 100 years old is an antique, which is, you know, a really big difference and really reframed a lot of things for me. Okay, so antiques are old. I got it. But if they have to be 100 plus years old, well, then how old does something have to be to be considered vintage? Well, it turns out that it should be at least 20 years old, which kind of blows my mind because I want to remind you that the year right now is 2020. So that means Genco jeans are vintage and Delia's clothes like, whoa. There's also this idea that vintage should represent the era in which it was produced. According to Ruby Lane, which is an online destination for vintage and antique furniture, clothing, jewelry, all of that. They got a lot of dolls, if I recall. Quote, vintage can mean an item is of a certain period of time, as in vintage 1950s, but it can also mean, and probably always should, that the item exhibits the best of a certain quality or qualities associated with or belonging to that specific era. So basically, 
Genco jeans are virtually iconic of a time period in which we all wore ball chain chokers, rocket dog platform Mary Janes, and baby barrettes. So Genco jeans are 100% vintage. And the same goes for the clothes any of us bought and probably lost from Delia's. It's kind of crazy to think about, right? But once again, Delia's is so iconic of the 90s and in many ways would represent the best of that era's fashion. Not the high fashion, but you know, like the mass fashion. So anything from Delia's would be a high quality vintage piece to come across, you know, because it was, it would be so iconic. So what about retro? This is the third word I wanted to discuss. I always shy away from that term because it really just means it references an era from the past, but it's not from the past. And we see that a lot in fashion. In fact, always. Like for example, in the 70s, referencing the 20s was a key component of that like bohemian Laurel Canyon style. And then the 80s, 50s style became an inspiration for people like Cindy Lauper, but it also extended to major mass fashion as well. And in the 90s, Lady Miss Keir reintroduced us to mod. And so that trickled down. I mean, I had literally a mod dress from Kmart, okay? So all of the clothes made during these eras that were inspired by previous eras were retro, but not vintage at the time. But weirdly enough, all of these clothes are now vintage in 2020. <laughs> I think I'm giving myself a headache. <laughs> okay. Let's get into my conversation with Christine. Today, we're going to be joined by Christine, who is a good friend of mine and also is an expert vintage seller and just sort of knows everything about vintage. So I'm excited to have her here today to tell us a little bit about the hustle of selling vintage. So Christine, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I grew up in lower Appalachia, um, in a really small rural town and there wasn't a lot of options for finding clothing. There was like an old school department store. I think it was called people's and then like a roses. We didn't even have a Walmart back in the day. So me neither. I grew up in a town so rural that we also did not have a Walmart. And when it opened in like sixth or seventh grade, it was like the biggest thing. Huge deal. Huge. Yeah. Whole Huge. town was there. Yeah. yeah. It was like, you put on your best to go to Walmart <laughs> yeah. and there were gatherings in the parking lot. It was the place. I don't know if it was this way where you grew up, but like when I was in high school, if you could get a job at Walmart, like you were on easy street set. Yeah. Right. And now, <laughs> now we talk about Walmart just being, I mean, that could be a whole episode in itself. Like they don't pay people Evil enough. Yeah. It's a terrible place yeah. to work. And to think that like, that was like the best job you could have in town. I mean, that really says something. I remember it smelled different from other stores. It did. It did. <laughs> like it smelled clean and magical and like, just like stuff. It was really enchanting. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I went off to college with only stuff from Walmart because it was luxurious to me Yeah, to be like, I got brand new sheets at Walmart. Wow. <sighs> I know. And I, yeah. And it's, uh, it's interesting too, to think about brands that they've taken over like white stag or oh, yeah. you know, and how it almost rings as a decline for those brands. But back in the day for me, that was like 
glamorous like, <laughs> stuff to totally. wear Totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I remember thinking that they had good clothes. Yeah. Well, and maybe they were, maybe they were better back then. It's like really hard to say. It's hard to say. I mean, you'd get that nice Jansport backpack there and you like, you were set and you were on trend and ready to go totally. to school. Totally. So it's hard to say. Yeah. Anyway, back to where you grew up. <laughs> um, yeah. Small rural town. So we did some thrift store shopping and it was like a big deal to go two hours to like the mall in a big city, you know? Mm -hmm. And then also a big part of growing up in lower Appalachia was, uh, fiber arts and craft were really big there. So I grew up with like a lot of handmade stuff and playing on farms with sheep and watching the sheep get sheared in the spring and playing in my mom's cabinet with her wool and the whole process of fiber arts was really big for me growing up. And I think kind of kept a, a good foundation for growing into vintage as I progressed. It's all about fiber content, you know? And so I've always appreciated that. So you grew up being really like into thrift shopping and having this awareness of what was good what wasn't as good? I don't know about good. Like I remember begging my mom to make me a pair of hammer pants one time and then she did. Well, I'm, those are good. <laughs> well, uh, not according to the kids in Franklin, North Carolina, because I got called doo-doo pants. <laughs> like, I, like it was humiliating. So don't ask your mom to make like the top trends because kids won't get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, totally. I got really into the the trend of wearing like multiple pairs of slouch socks like layered oh, over each other. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you would have like the stripe going up your leg and people at school call me Punky Brewster. It's fine. Whatever. It's fine. That is a badge of honor. Like punk, <laughs> Punky was rad. Yeah, I definitely got made fun of for the hammer pants and then like the blossom hat trend. Oh yeah, I got into that hard. Yeah. Very but, hard. But kids kids were haters. So I think yeah. no matter what you do, you're always doomed to be uncool as a kid. But <laughs> I think that's true. Who's laughing now? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you're one of the first people I met who actually was like, vintage is my full-time job. I'm not also a bartender. Like this is literally what I do all the time. So how did that happen? That was kind of just out of a push for struggling once I moved to a new city. Like I had plans for myself to get a job. Like I had been doing some acting work as well as murals and stuff. And then I came to Portland thinking I would jump right into that. And, uh, uh yes. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we all have dreams when we move to a, an interesting place. Right. But right. Right. Um, I fell into a vintage store as soon as I moved here and got a job, and so that was like a part-time thing. And then through that, I was able to get a gig working for a bigger vintage employer out of Colorado. And mm -hmm. I got sent to the Rockabilly Weekender in Vegas and working for them for that like long ass grueling week. I was really amazed at in-person sales, international clients, and then like seeing how much with um, kind of a traveling show or an expo weekend, like that a company mm -hmm. could make so much money that it would actually put them into the black for the year, you know? 
Yeah, that's amazing. That blew my mind. And so that kind of built up confidence in me to say like, oh, this thing that you enjoy doing, you can do it full time. But I was also living rurally at the time in a very affordable home. So I didn't have a ton of overhead. And vintage is something that if you have a little nest egg and can invest in a lot of buying up front, you mm-hmm. can find it can sustain, especially with the progress of Instagram and selling online. It really makes it a lot easier. Do you sell anything online right now? I have through Etsy, um, but that's not my main form right now. I'm still doing a lot of uh, in-person sale. Well, not as much as I would normally in a year. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Online selling has made me some good money. And I have to say like Etsy is great about um, introducing you to a larger audience. Right. I could see that. But through their years of change, it's also become a lot more frustrating because They've rapidly expanded. I think somebody that used to run eBay took it over Mm -hmm. and they've really like changed their kind of format and they're pushing more and more and more for free shipping, immediate shipping. Um, And frankly, it just puts so much pressure on the independent seller uh, Mm -hmm. to perform like Amazon, to perform like Madewell and these big companies that can have very generous return policies. And it's so hard to meet that demand. I'm I'm sure. And it does seem like, I mean, I've talked about this with some other sellers that we're kind of at the, in this era where the customer's always right. And so, so like Etsy or Poshmark or eBay or always going to stand on the side of the buyer. Yeah, always. I mean, they have nothing to lose in it. They are not vested at all. And they just want their platform to run as, you know, shiningly as possible with very little regard for the seller. So that is entirely frustrating. And I've had moments where I would sell something to a buyer in France they would haggle me on a gorgeous 1920s silken velvet number, and then I'd comply and I'd say, okay, fine, I'll I'll give in and I'll cut that deal for you. And then a month later, they receive it. They they say there's a flaw, even though you know it was perfect when you shipped it. Mm-hmm. And you just have to give them a refund. And then you don't get the item back or you do get it back. And it's even more crushed up. And it's two months after you originally sold it. And you just have to deal with it and it's crushing. And so at least with in-person sales, you have the benefit of somebody seeing your face, knowing you're the one selling the garment. You can work out a deal in person if you want, you know, and there's that exchange and there's Mm -hmm. less room for someone to be demanding at this person that they've never seen before and have no vested interest in. <laughs> right, right. Because there's no personal connection there. So they don't right. have to feel bad. Yes. If they're a jerk. Right. So that's a big problem with um, COVID, you know, is it pushes us into the online yeah. retail world. But because of, you know, this push towards, you know, crushing the little guy, it really makes it that much harder. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't know when this is going to end. Like, I feel like there's no end in sight. No. (laughs) But my hope is that 
we're all going to have all this time to reflect on how broken things are and come up with something better on the other side. Yeah. But for right now, it's like, I know you kind of were sort of leading the charge to do safe outdoor markets yeah. in Portland. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, I think that people realized, oh yeah, being outside is fine. Just wear a mask. Don't be an asshole. Right. right. Yeah. What's going to happen for the holidays? I mean, I guess the weather's kind of mild in Portland. I mean, I don't know. I think the rain is going to push everyone inside. And Oregon has been far safer than other states. Like, I've seen a lot more stuff out of uh, my family that lives in Georgia about how, uh, like, malls are open. Mm-hmm. I know. Isn't that crazy? You know, so... I don't know how that works, but I frankly feel like once you're inside and you're in a building, like rates are going to go up Mm -hmm. just like they were in the early spring uh, at grocery stores. Right, right. Even the ones that said they had great cleaning practice, limited entry, and had masks, there were still outbreaks within people working there and customers. So I don't don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah, agreed. So, Christine, I'm going to ask you All right. a hard question. <laughs> Is it possible to just go start a full-time vintage business and never have to work anywhere else again? <laughs> like, can you do that? I mean, obviously, that's the dream and what, you know, some some kind of uh, TV personalities will lead you to believe, but it is a hard <laughs> road. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I haven't always been fully self-employed doing this. It's only been within the last few years that I've committed a hundred percent to it, but I'd say to fully sustain this career, I'm always having to supplement it by working side hustles that ultimately keep it chugging along, you know, working part-time at Mm -hmm. Uh, whatever shop I'm vending in, whether it be like a dealer space and then I'm having to work the cash register on weekends or working retail hours or also freelancing and assisting other stores. Um, You know, a lot of other dealers can be a little bit older and maybe don't have a handle on Instagram or selling on Etsy. So I've definitely helped them along and earn some money hourly that way. Or also just using that whole buy, sell, trade kind of model to keep cash flow coming in and then the inventory cycle flowing. So, you know, there's always a hustle. Of course. And I'm sure, I mean, I I already know this because I know you, but for the listeners to hear, like you have to buy your own health insurance. You don't get paid vacation time. Not every year. You don't, you don't get sick days, right? Right. You know, like yeah. you, you have to take care of yourself in a full way. You're responsible for way more complicated taxes. I'm sure your accounting is a lot more complex than, you know, someone who works at a regular corporate job. Yeah. Shout out to Shift Accounting because I don't know what I would do without my friend Jenna really helping me with my bookkeeping. QuickBooks does it, but like, man, she really... Yeah, you got to be friends with somebody to help you with bookkeeping and stuff because it does get very challenging. Yeah, for sure. So it's not just as simple as like, hey, I'm going to leave my corporate job. I'm like fed up with it. Now I have a vintage business. Like there's so many other things involved. And I'm sure, you know, you had COVID in the spring. Yeah. So, I mean, you were sick for a while. And I hope you're not embarrassed to admit that. As you know, I was like sick for months too. 
you couldn't really run your business. So what do you do? Yeah. I mean, I was struggling because, um, not only was I sick with what led into essentially pneumonia for eight weeks. Uh, I also have kind of lingering, um, brain fog and cognitive delays, which Mm -hmm. really made everything, a productivity, a struggle, you know? So Mm -hmm. I had to take a leave of one of my businesses, but I'm, getting back on track. And then of course, you know, the flea market model was really put off this year. So that was, that was a challenge, but yeah, between like taking care of yourself and a business and then still finding ways to hustle and garner that income is a huge challenge. And it takes every waking moment of your time to figure that out. There's constantly a grind and it is that thing of like, do what you love, but you have to really enjoy some aspect of it because you're going to be working at it like 24 seven. Oh, right. Totally. Like I know that you rarely take a full on vacation. Like anytime you go somewhere, you're also trying to source. Right. I'm trying to make it a business trip so that I can, you know, work through it. But yeah, like my vacations become my road trips down to LA to sell, Um, And then I make it a buying trip, a selling trip. I make, um, you know, networking a part of it. Um, And those become my vacations, like working trips. Right. (laughs) So, you know, it's always a challenge of, okay, how, how can I get business done on this adventure or whatever? The conversation I have the most with my friends who own their own business, whether they're selling vintage or making stuff is like, you've got to pay yourself a living wage, Right. So first off, do you think you pay yourself a living wage? No. (laughs) Okay. No. No. And I mean, I look at my friends all the time and I really envy their, you know, getting to check out of work. I mean, save for frustrating work emails, you know, they get to go home at the end of the day, put their feet up and, you know, I come home at the end of the day from work and then I'm doing laundry in my tub, you know, I mean, right, right. I, <laughs> or, or sitting there watching a movie to try and mentally unwind, but still like mending and processing. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't get, I don't have a salary. It's like, am I make, am I paying my bills? Cool. Am I making enough to go out to eat? Am I making enough to, you know, have a membership at the theater that I love? I don't know. It gets dicey sometimes. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Once again, there are no benefits. You don't have a 401k, you know, like, like this is, this is like, this is very challenging because like, also, you know, you have overhead expenses. I think that probably a lot of listeners are going to think, okay, well, yeah, you have to go buy the clothes, but they're probably pretty affordable. But like, that's just the beginning. Like you already touched on laundry and you know what? Laundry costs some money. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> right. And so like, what are some other expenses that you have? You know, with a brick and mortar, you're going to have like rent. And sometimes that can be crazy high. Um, I was renting a space in a vendor mall and I was paying almost 1500 a month in Jeez. there, you know, but that's really, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I would never guess. That's crazy. No, I know. I I don't even want to talk about which store that is or what the details are. But, you know, part of that was allowing that store to pay employees to be open Mm -hmm. seven days a week. Makes sense. But like how much were they getting paid realistically? Well, rent in this town is expensive and to have a giant storefront is expensive. You know, Portland, you know, over the last few years has skyrocketed 
price because everybody realized it was the cheapest West Coast city. And then as the in price <laughs> prices went up in uh, San Francisco, there was a lot of movement to Portland and a lot of investors got really ahead of themselves with the growth. In a store, you're going to be paying rent and stuff like that. And you got laundry and taxes and stuff. But like, what about if you're trying to sell online? Okay. So online, I'd say most of your investment's going to be upfront in like, you know, if you want a dress form, if you want the professional lighting, uh, the reflector sheet, a nice camera, a computer setup, like those are all part of the initial, you know, I mean, sometimes people can just go in and do live from the bins photos where they just drop it on the floor, take a photo of their phone, sell it online. But I think to have a more professional setup, you have upfront costs. And then I think over time, they kind of work itself out, but then you're not paying yourself specifically, but you have so much more of an investment in time with the photography, making sure the lighting is right, writing the copy, uh, the shipping and handling, um, the little details like wrapping it in tissue and writing a little thank you note and all the little things that the accoutrement that uh, go along with that. And then, oh yeah. man, the just the customer exchanges through email. You are your customer service department. I'm sure. And I feel like this is like a recurring theme with everybody I know who owns their own business. It's really bad right now with all the USPS stuff. I'm Every person I talk to, it is the worst stories. And I thought that we all knew that the postal service was messed up right now. Yeah. Who missed the memo? I don't know. I had to stop shipping internationally in the beginning and that messed up a few sales because I would take it to the post office and they're like, well, it's going to be at least a three month delay, but maybe longer. Things are just going to other countries and sitting in customs. And we don't know how long they're going to be there for. Oh my God. Yeah. I just saw another one of my friends, actually Danny, who's been on a previous episode, also is stopping international shipping because it's been a nightmare. Yeah. I mean, I, I hate seeming elitist online. You know, you want to accommodate everybody, but just given this unprecedented time, God, I hate that word now, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it is just not worth it. And I have had instances before where I've shipped something internationally, takes a month to get there. They wear it once and then complain that it was messed up when they received it, but then really want to return it. And then it takes you a month to get the garment back. And it's just in the worst shape ever because it's been beat up by shipping customs and the person that was scamming you. It's just really not worth it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, definitely not. I, it sounds so stressful. So, okay, you, you more than anyone else I know personally do a lot of selling at these like flea markets. Well, they're not flea markets; they're like fleas, which is more elevated. For, Take for the market days. off, and it's, yeah, <laughs> you can like quadruple your price, right? So these like fleas or these other events, right? Right. So, I'm sure there's specific overhead related to that too. Uh, well, credit card fees, you know, you have to invest in a tent. You want to have nice racks that are transportable or other displays that you can kind of bang around and have some durability, but still look nice. You're also going to have flea fees. <laughs> flea fees. Uh, Sounds adorable. <laughs> fees for <laughs> the fees. Yeah. <laughs> And some are more expensive than others, you know. Sometimes with the longer expos, 
that can be several hundred dollars, but then you've got several days of market. Other times it's a single day and that's maybe a hundred bucks or maybe less. It varies, you know, on market to market. And some of them only last, you know, like five or six hours. And then some of them are, you know, full work days where you're there at 3 a.m. to get ready and load in. And then you're there till 4 p.m. Usually you'll have the expense of a vehicle to even load your stuff. And also don't forget your phone. That is an expense and you're using it all the time to promote and work. A lot of, lot of kind of um, hidden expenses, but also just time, energy. It's a lot of work. Speaking of your phone. So this is a question I've always had because I'm a person who never has cash. <laughs> I know you know what I'm going to ask you. Uh, yeah. Okay. Do you prefer <laughs> slash what are your feelings of cash versus like square, you know, credit card when you're at a flea market, please. Just, or once again, it's not a flea market. It's a flea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, as uh, the old timers have always taught me, cash is king, right? So remember, if you are going to a market, I would recommend taking a chunk of change depending on your shopping levels. Um, And if you run out, they usually have ATMs nearby. I mean, in this modern world, vendors do take card. But just know that we're also dealing with, even with Square, you still have fees, You still have credit card transaction cuts that you have to pay Mm -hmm. out. So be aware of that when you're haggling. You're less likely to get a deal when you're paying in plastic. I do have to say that post-COVID, we've all started doing like Venmo or Cash App. I get a little hesitant about social media as a form of payment. Yeah. You know, as a platform for payment, that makes me a little, you know, it's like, okay, everyone knows what I'm selling today because the transactions come up. I know. I Ooh. feel I feel weird about Venmo. I, like I'm not weird... I'm not really a fan. I mean, it's convenient, but it's too much so to where it's like they've got you and then it but how is payment a social media thing? I know it's really, really weird. It's kind of gross. All the yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, but it is convenient because um, at the flea, I can just pull up my QR code and then someone just bloop and then scans it. I pop up. They can pay me. Bam, bam. And then right. that one doesn't have fees, but uh, they're making so much money off of us, so it creeps yeah. me out. Okay, so. I mean, this is obviously not an episode about Venmo, but like, how are they making the money off of us? That's what freaks me out. Where is that happening? Where is that happening? Um, they're they're probably selling like interaction. I don't I don't know. I don't know tech. It creeps me out. <laughs> I know. I mean, there's there's a catch. I know. I know. So I'm like, so they know how much I pay in rent. Yeah. And who my friends are, and how much they pay in rent, and if they have roommates, and like. It it just goes on and on and on. It super freaks me out. But also remember, like, whatever apps you have on your phone, they're able to communicate with your other apps. So, like, who owns Venmo? Is it? I think it's PayPal. I think it's PayPal. Hmm. I'll follow up on it, but I'm pretty sure I saw that recently and I was like, whoa, whoa, wait, what? Because PayPal has fees and they're pretty steep, you know? Right. So that's why I've all along been like, what's the catch with Venmo? I don't know. But, I mean, one thing I do like about it is that, You know, if I make a transaction on Venmo, someone can message me. And like the other day I did a return on jeans. I was like, look, I know because of COVID and this is a flea, you can't really try them on. You know, if they don't fit, you're local, I'm local, I'll give you a refund. 
And so then they were able to message me about that. So I can do some kind of flyby things where, you know, otherwise like you might lose contact with a person. If you're at a market and you're buying a t-shirt, you may forget to be like, oh yeah, what's your Instagram handle? You know? So then you're like, oh, what was that vendor that I saw at that one market? There you go. Even though we know it's not. It's creepy. (laughs) I don't like it. What's the biggest lesson you've learned along the way? It just seems like vintage is made to last, you know, like quality is there. Um, And quality is something that we've definitely moved away from with fast fashion. (laughs) Yes. Oh, yes. And so even going through, say, a thrift store, you know, like a contemporary piece, the fabric feels so cheap compared to older garments. So sometimes I can just run through a rack and tell a vintage piece just on look and then touch to confirm. Mm -hmm. But fiber content, once again, matters. I would also say trends are cyclical. So in that, like, they just keep coming back around, you know, as part of the 90s is back again. You can see the micro trends within that of the 70s and, you know, sometimes the 30s come through again. And so if you keep going to those classic pieces, they'll keep coming back around. You know, a few years ago, uh, gunny sacks were so hard to sell and mm-hmm. they're, they're back again. They're going back up in style. Oh, yeah. For like top dollar. Right. Top dollar again. Yeah. It's just interesting that you'll have a few years where an item seems dead in the water, like it won't sell. And then a few years later, it's the item du jour. Yeah, totally. Totally. I, well, I mean, one thing I, that would always strike me is when you would talk about sort of your strategy for where each of the items you sourced was going to go. Cause you kind of had like multiple streams of sales, right. right. With like different customers. Yeah. And you would always speak to how like, Oh, like these nineties things that are like this, they're like the younger trends. They're the lower price point. Like they're going to go here and this is a lot more high end. So I'm going to sell that at this show. And this is going to be great for like the Portland flea. And like you had, you had it right. the out. different avenues. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how long did it take you to kind of figure that out? Well, so, I mean, that took a bit of expansion within the Portland market between like having a booth at one store that had a certain demographic as the customer, having access to another store that had a totally different approach and aesthetic and demographic. And then, you know, Portland Flea is definitely within a higher kind of realm of taste, but also you still have to be accessible with pricing. Mm -hmm. But then when I would take up to the road and go down to LA for the Rose Bowl, that was just like, oof, take those top dollar pieces. So it's kind of given me freedom to pick a wide variety of items and to say, okay, this can be slung to tourists for pretty cheap. And then, okay, this goes to this particular neighborhood set that's that needs this type of item. I love having access to the international markets because it's always so fascinating to me. Like when you look at what Japanese buyers want or what Australian customers need, because um, in Australia, they don't have a lot of their own production. And so a lot of the vintage that they collect and curate down there just keeps circulating. Mm -hmm. And then they're so desperate for new garments to bring back home to share 
Japan is also interesting because they have somewhat different trends than we do, but they also kind of influence our trends or are also on a certain cusp that then you see ours kind of move in that direction a bit more. So that's fascinating to watch. It is interesting to me because when you go to Japan, all the vintage there is from the United States. Oh, I yeah. swear to God, right? But yet, like the last company I worked for, the buyers would literally go to Japan to try to find trends to then bring back to the United States and sell here. And it was like, but all the stuff that they're selling there came from here. And right. so you know, you're paying and, top dollar to bring it back here. I, know, I don't know it's about so that. Bizarre. It's so bizarre. But I would see, I mean, Dustin and I, you know, on the, all the trips we've had to Japan, we were like, wow, we saw the evolution yeah. of like the trend in terms of what vintage was going to influence people back here in the United States to make and sell because, you know, all the buyers for all of the like more youth oriented brands are going over there and the designers and whatnot and seeing this. So it was like in the beginning, the first time we went to Japan, everything was like what you would expect in terms of being like very Americana, you know, like Western shirts and denim. I know you sold a ton of that to Japanese buyers. So, you know, and then the next time we went, it was, it got like weirder and more like what I come to recognize as what I see in like just a plentiful amount of in thrift stores. So it was like tons and tons of hard rock cafe t-shirts, for example. I know, right? And like Looney Tunes and all these yeah. things that we have seen. Like ugly just- sweaters. They were really like, yeah, when I went a few years ago, it was like a lot of Thrasher t-shirts and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's funny now, like some of the ones that have come since COVID have been asking for those silk like early 90s, late 80s shirts that had oh. the, the Gooch label. And they were yeah. silk with like really yeah. ugly prints. They were terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love I mean, that label though, Gooch. What is that about? <laughs> it doesn't. It does not surprise me that that's what they've been looking for because we saw with each trip we took to Japan, the trends got more and more ni- late 90s streetwear. Uh-huh. And so like tons of Tommy Hilfiger and Fila yes. and FUBU, all vintage. Yeah. You know, and like in some situations remade to fit smaller people or to fit girls. And like we saw mannequins with only the one overall strap fastened. Like it was so (laughs) just like all the trends that I feel like have been very slow to come back here in the United States because we kind of were all like embarrassed about that era. Like like, things from the 90s that have come back, we've really like picked and chose. You know what I mean? Oh, baby, baby. We got some juicy coming back in. Okay. That was going to be my next question. Yeah. If you had <laughs> if you had seen any interest in that, because it would seem to me if we're going in this progression, then when is it time for juicy and Von Dutch? It's now. I mean, let's be real athleisure and then the comfort suits, the sweatsuits. It's, it's time is now I'd say. <laughs> Oh my God. But, that's so terrifying. You know, it's, it's also within different demographics though. Like I'm seeing teens and early twenties gravitating towards that. Cause also if you think about it, that's when they were born and what their parents were wearing. So mm-hmm. totally, I think that's a big part of it, but you know, I know women that are like, now that I've gone high rise, I'm never going back to low rise. 100%. Like there's no way you're getting be back in a muffin top pant. You know, and like pulling up your thong real uh, high, the, you know? the whale, whale tail alert. Yeah, I mean, there were certain things about that that were just so miserable. 
you know, and like really low rise jeans, but then like also really long shirts. Like think about how long <laughs> shirts were in that time period. Yeah. It was so the hip for biz- sure. Bizarre. Yeah. And when I was working in buying, like one of the first years that I like had been made that transition into buying, I was in a meeting where the person who was in charge of buying teas and like, you know, basics like that had actually just shortened all the teas, not even to be like at the waist, still slightly below, but not this like weird, slim, long tunic to fit with your low rise jeans. And none of them sold. It was like a huge liability. And uh, I think that's so funny because we've been in the era of the crop top for so long now. Which I also resent, like, I just will not alter a garment. I just won't. I can't I can't wrap my mind around doing something for a micro trend. I know. I know. I feel like it's so wasteful. Because then, you know, 10 years from now, you're going to find a shit ton of shirts and you're like, who butchered these? <laughs> Why did they do that? Or like when you find amazing denim jeans that have been made into a mini skirt and you're like, uh, uh, or when I'm- women were making pants into handbags. Like those uh, butt jeans. <laughs> oh my god! I like forgot what? about that until now. Oh. I know so you many. Find one and it's like an amazing, like really old denim with like an orange Levi's tab, where you're like, oh, those were great seventies jeans that I she know. just butchered into a. Oh, I know. Oh I I remember us like doing a craft project in Girl Scouts where we turned a pair of jeans into like a pair of throw pillows, and that also makes me sad. Who wants that? Yeah, who wants? <laughs> Do you really want a butt cushion on your couch anyway? I don't know. know. So, so crazy. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to think about all of the really awesome clothes that we have wasted with these idiotic trends. Like in the early aughts, that whole idea of like upcycling, but it was like the most lazy upcycling ever would be like, (laughs) I cut the sleeves off of this t-shirt and then I like, sewed a ruffle on the bottom of it or something you know it was always terrible or like sewing weird patches all over a perfectly amazing t-shirt and now it was just ruined I mean I'll be real sometimes I worry that Etsy encouraged a lot of that too (laughs) (laughs) I mean I remember that era of Portland like there were so many stores that were doing that oh yeah Saturday market oh yeah cutting up t-shirts and then adding safety pins or screen printing on a dress or taking an incredible maxi dress and cutting it into just a shirt and throwing the rest of it away like that kind of stuff just so brutal I won't do it. Yeah. It it just bums me out. Or like, you know, Nike shirts hit such a pinnacle of value um, within the last year. I think now it's starting to decline again, but you know how I feel about that. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm with you about Nike, but if I found a good older piece, like I would pick it and sell it. But Mm -hmm. um, one time somebody I know found all of these like, quote unquote, grail Nike t-shirts, but they were all cut up and sewn into a fucking quilt <laughs> and they oh, pulled God. it out of the bins. And it was just like, everyone's just like, oh man, womp, womp. <laughs> who would use that for their bed? Yeah. Somebody that was like maybe a runner and they had collected all these marathon tees and like their wife just wanted, they don't wear them. So their wife wanted to like pay homage by making a quilt. But then at the same time, you're like, wow, you just, 
Then they got well, a divorce. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, I don't want this quilt in my I life mean, anymore. <laughs> yeah, it definitely made its way to the bins. So some, something happened along the way. Yeah, there's definitely a dark story there. Because <laughs> like, if someone made that for me, even if I hated it, I would be like, they put so much work and time and thought. I'm saying you would hold effort. on to it. I know you would hold on to it, even if you never used it and you only put it out when they came over. But you certainly wouldn't send it to the bins unless yeah. there had been a falling out. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I find sometimes I get something and I get this feeling when I find it like, oh, that was someone did not mean to throw that out. That was yeah. like a j- jilted ex-girlfriend or that was in between blankets or sheets in their, oh, you know, like the, the yeah. tossed in the wrong thing after their laundry and was just sitting in the bottom of their closet for too long. But you were like, that rock tea did not need to be thrown. I don't, whoops, <laughs> might come up, you know, I don't yeah. it, like, you just can feel like that was a mistake. They didn't mean to throw that out. We know that like trends have changed a lot as you've, as you've been working in vintage, but has the sort of industry itself changed? Because as an outsider, I feel like it has, but I mean, you're like right there in the trenches. So you're probably seeing how it's changed. For me, like when I started doing it full time was uh, Mad Men era. Oh, wow. So it was all, you know, like unique party dress was the go-to thing for the algorithm. (laughs) 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 Uh, (laughs) That was the key search term that you needed to watch. Yeah, it was unique vintage party dress. Yeah, that makes, I mean, that makes sense to me. And now it's like single stitch t-shirt or, you know, like all these kids with the hype t-shirts, they're taking like an MC Escher shirt or like that glow in the dark Einstein celestial shirt that we all knew the nerd in class had in the early nineties. <laughs> yeah. And now it's like, they're paying 200 bones for those shirts. That's so crazy. Which is what I was selling like a 1940s, 50s, 60s dress for back in the day. Like now those, I mean, those still retain value, but it's crazy that these t-shirts that I was like, Oh, whatever. It's not even that old. It's like late nineties, Y2K. And now kids are like, what? That's so sick. That is crazy to me. I am thinking, you know, Dustin and I were talking the other day. I don't know what brought it up. I I think I brought it up, but I said, you know, in your school, in late junior high and high school, did you have a lot of girls who wore Phantom of the Opera t-shirts to school? <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, no. Well, the Les Mis shirt at yeah, my school. Yes, yeah, that too, that too, that too. And he, he was like, no, we didn't have that at my school. And I was like, what? You didn't have those Whoa. girls who had seen a musical like one time. One time and flipped out. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. Was their life. And so when are we all going to start seeing that as like the hot trend to wear your vintage 90s beefy tee for Les Mis? <laughs> well, that's what the kid, that's what I'm saying. Like, so uh, tomorrow there's going to be a flea market and it's all these hype vendors in town. And they're all like newer come ups that have just like popped on the radar within the last like three years and they're all t-shirt vendors <laughs> wow that, and I, it's i mean it's it's bananas and so like now when you go to uh, by the way i like to call the bins the office especially <laughs> okay. when in public because it just seems a little classier but whenever i go to the office it seems like there are these voracious 
kids and that's all they want. And they're like, yo, that's so hype. And you're like, okay, oh. well, <laughs> you go for that and I'll go for like my actual quality textiles and like good things that retain value. Right. right. And aren't going to be like a flash in the pan. But I don't know. Maybe that trend will stick around. It's hard to say. I mean, I will say I hate the aesthetic of all of those shirts, right? They weren't primarily because they were uncool to me the first time around. Why would they be cool to me now? That would be like some betrayal of who I am. But I'm glad someone's wearing them because yeah. think about how many dumb like musical t-shirts were made in the 90s. I Well, that's the thing too is like it's bon- it's bonkers to me that they're like that coveted and that hyped. And you're like, do you know how many of those were made? Like the Friends t-shirts or oh, the Seinfeld t-shirts. Totally. You know, I mean, like I get something a little less common like I don't know how many Spike Lee like t-shirts they made back in the day of I don't know what what was one of his movies that do the uh, right thing I don't know oh shit yeah the do the right thing sweatshirt or like t-shirt there weren't a ton of those but like that that's pretty cool but I don't know that that would fetch the same prices you know the Cosmo Kramer. <laughs> oh my God. You know, I mean, and I think that does speak to like a generational difference too, because we were, maybe right. we weren't adults when Seinfeld was on, but like we were aware of it. Right. And yeah. so we are all familiar of that painting of <laughs> Cosmo. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, Dylan saw a print of that at the beach and she was just blown away that this existed and like wanted to oh, buy it. And, yeah, yeah. and yeah. Dustin and I were like, Oh, like, you have no idea how many millions of those sold. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> um, it's totally a generational thing. Um, you know, and like, what is the, how do you pronounce it? Is it Visco girl or the yeah, DSCO? The Visco, Visco girls. Yeah. Visco girl. Yeah. So that whole thing, I'm like, whoa, if you had my, clo- if you had access to my closet in that era, like that's a hundred percent what, they're wearing, you know. Oh yeah, the little baby barrettes and the bowl cut. What was the, that photo you put up where you looked like Drew Barrymore back in the day? Oh yeah, yeah, that was dead on. It's yeah. like you know, just more proof that trends are a hundred percent cyclical. Oh, for sure. It's super weird to see Dylan dressing exactly exactly like I did yeah. on her stage, like down to a T. It blows my mind constantly. And seeing yeah. what she gravitates towards at the thrift store, like she bought a dress that I swear to God, I owned the exact same dress, the exact same brand in like yeah. 1994. Yep. It was yep. crazy. I was like, yeah. that came from Macy's. It's Rayon. I know it well. Cute. Yeah. I, I've worn that. Yeah. <laughs> I love watching the girls walk down the street and you're like, oh my gosh, you're a walking Delia's catalog from when you're like, you're so cool. Cause that was what was cool when I was a kid and you're on it, you know, I don't know. It's totally, but, but think about you like 10 years ago when you would go thrifting, you would like cruise right by that stuff. Cause you're like, uh, you know, like, Too soon. yeah, I felt like for a couple of years there, the entire Goodwill was all these like rayon faux patchwork printed dresses and I was like next next yeah. next but now I'm like oh my god yeah. I should have bought all of them I would be making a fortune right, right now yeah. where did they go where are they they probably went to a landfill right so yeah. what's what's the yeah, next thing yeah. yeah I mean you don't necessarily think about it until the trend is starting to bubble up or whatever 
It's totally weird. Totally. So, well, that's kind of brings us to sourcing. Now I know that any vintage seller does not want to reveal their sources. So I thought you could just sort of give us a high level of the kind of places you shop for your inventory and kind of like what your strategy is there. So I'm sure it's way different than when I go thrifting. Yeah. I mean, so if I walk into a thrift store, which I'm not going to lie, I will buy at a thrift store and totally resell. Um, right. I am, you know, once again, going for fiber content, going, I don't know, there's, there's just this thing where I can look at something and say, well, I might not wear it, but if I can picture in my mind, the person that would wear it, mm-hmm. usually that's accurate, especially working in the retail and watching what these customers are buying or gravitating towards between working in a storefront and working the flea markets. Mm-hmm. I get a feel for these different customers. So it's just imagining that customer. Sometimes it's tough to have too much like forward thinking about it and be like, oh, that really cool random girl would totally want that. It's, I don't know, it's hard to say, but. There's usually some attention paid to colors that are relevant, but ultimately to me, it's like, it's always a gamble when you go into thrift store. You don't know if you're going to find some seventies knit that's incredible, or you're going to find only nineties silks, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it just, it really varies. And it's just a matter of like, what's in that store and if it speaks to you enough and if the price is right. You know, and I want to at least aim for three times what I pay is the rule of thumb. Ah, interesting. Which, I mean, to me, very reasonable. Right. I will tell you that the retailers that I've worked for that were selling vintage, Nasty Gal being a big example of that, were probably marking things up 10, 20, 30 times. Yeah. Whoa. I mean, like, that's why you could go every time we would have a vintage launch, it would be like, okay, here's some rock teas. They're all $400. Wow. You know? Yeah. I mean, there are those teas and sometimes depending on the rarity of them or the desirability, you know, like all of course go over that three times rule. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the whole thing about $400 teas is really kind of bananas to me. There's one t-shirt that I have that somebody had marked at 400. I really wanted it. So I traded him three t-shirts for that one t-shirt. And I've seen that t-shirt since listed on grailed for $1,500. Jesus Christ. I hate that. That makes me so angry. It's Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, how rude are you? And I mean, like there are some, so within that extreme range i'll tell you also within true vintage there's one uh print on like 50s stuff that will net you around that as well and that's Mm -hmm. uh a print with spider webs and roses and if you find that and it's on a really nice like one of what some people are calling now the cold rayon, but it's that silky rayon that feels like silk almost. But um, if you find a garment with that, that's been the highest fetching uh, print on wow, eBay. Yeah, it's, it's 
bananas. Who's buying that? Is it like collectors? Is it like stylist? Is it someone who's really going to wear it? Is it costumers? Uh, maybe all of the above. I feel like with the rose print, that's some just diehard rockabilly fanatics. Wow. Wow. I have one dress out of that that I found at Red Light. And I'm I'm like, well, if I need rent, Mama there you knows go. where to get it, you know? Yeah, I guess so. So, okay. Well, you also just mentioned finding something at Red Light, which is if you're a not from Portland, it's like a, it's like Buffalo Exchange, but, but with less better. new stuff. Yeah. Well, better, they, they've yeah. gotten a lot more new stuff as the years have progressed. And actually... Recently, one of their main employees that has been there for, you know, well over a decade, just, I think, quit and came forward about some policies and treatment in that store, which is both not surprising and... Oh, definitely not. Also part of the world we're living in now, you know, like clean <laughs> clean the slate, you know? Yeah. I mean, I would say... Not to gossip about something most listeners are, are going to know about, but to be fair, you have a place in your city that's like red light and it was sort of an institution of like the coolest vintage clothes. You know, they also sold a lot of Halloween costume stuff and the people who worked there worked for there for a long time. And there was definitely a period in Portland where working at red light meant you were basically one of the coolest yeah. people in the city. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so selling there would be really stressful because you'd be like, what if they don't think I'm cool enough? And they would be mean to you. It was like, there's a broad thing. I don't think, I don't think they were as mean as Buffalo. Cause Buffalo, I'm like, I don't even understand what you're buying, what you're selling. Oh my sometimes. God. Don't even get me started. Like, yeah, how I don't either. are you being snooty with me? But then you're taking that person's H and M shirt. What is this yeah. mess? I have no idea. Whereas I have no at idea. least with red light, I was like, all right, if it's true vintage and it's not totally thrashed, they'll probably buy it. It's true. It's true. I remember back in the super golden era of red light, where it was literally like one of the coolest places you could work. Uh, so we're talking like, I don't know, 2003, 2004, that time period. One of the guys who worked there for a long time was also a DJ. And he was interviewed by the Portland Mercury, uh, which is like, you know, the local free newspaper, like Alternative Weekly. And he was the biggest fucking douchebag ever <laughs> in this interview where, once again, I just want to remind you, this is a guy who's like maybe spinning records a couple places a month in Portland, like at bars. And then he works at a used clothing store and not to be classist. But once again, this guy is not like a rock star. He's not super rich. He's not a celebrity, a true celebrity. Right. And he was like, yeah, I only date models because <sighs> models are like the most beautiful thing to be around. And I was also like, what models in Portland? In Portland yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that's, that's a funny thing too, about just the nature of this town and how, you know, you could just get by on a dishwasher salary, you know, like, Oh my God. Just- I mean, trust me. I wish I could rewind the clock. Yeah to 2005 Portland and go back there right now and never have to work in a corporate environment again. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. And I remember like I was, I was looking at moving into like a $650 apartment and all my friends were like, that is so expensive. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, but I was like, yeah, but I'm living alone in an apartment and I'm not, you know, but I don't know. It's, it's just, Whoa, it was, well, times have changed. Times have changed. <laughs> so anyway, so you source, you found stuff at Red Light, but like, 
what other kinds of places do you go? You're not, I, it doesn't seem like you're using thrift stores as your primary no, source. I mean, so then there's also the office, there's estate sales. Um, and also I got to say, like, I go to antique stores sometimes and antique expos. Um, and I meet dealers and I think having like repeat interactions with dealers um, has allowed me to maintain connections with people and been able to buy in bulk uh, quarterly mm-hmm. is the way I, that I used to do it was I would just save up and like quarterly I'd, I'd make deals with like some vendor from another state that I would meet up with. Yeah, just forging relationships or like that's the big benefit of having a brick and mortar is people are like, oh, you sell vintage. My grandmother just died and we have to clear out her home. And can I and I'm like, here's a business card. Right. Or people will bring you things or, you know, I think also once you're doing it long enough, everyone associates you with vintage. And so they'll bring you things to sell or they'll sell you things or they'll just say, hey, I need help clearing out my hoarder mom's attic oh my gosh yeah and I've done I've done some buys like that and they can be really overwhelming and also being on the other side of the counter for a buy sell trade type arrangement can be very sensitive you know like like we always assume like the people working at those counters are heinous but you know like it's a sensitive thing because you're like taking things that sometimes people value way more than what they're worth. Mm -hmm. You have to have tact and you have to like be frank about like, hi, just so you know, I am buying this to resell. So, you know, you don't want to be offensive with the price. If they come back in your store, they see what you've listed it for online. And they're like, how dare you? (laughs) You only paid me this much for it, you know, but there are costs with doing business and having a brick and mortar. It's always a really like tricky dance to play. I'm I'm sure. I, I had not even thought of that, of someone coming back in and being like, I can't believe you're selling my Nana's sweater yeah. for 200 bucks. And you're like, well, it was designer. Uh, you knew yeah. that. And I, and I paid you like a third of what I listed it for. So, you know, like, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's tough. And so that's why, you know, a lot of those stores like Buffalo and Red Light have these policies of, you know, um, We'll give you, what is it, 50% in cash out or more in trade. Oh, it's definitely not 50%. It's no, what like, is it? Then it's 50% in trade. Yeah, and, and like, I think it's what, like 30% maybe in yeah, cash. Yeah, you're yeah. right. You're right. Yeah. So, you know, um, having hardline policies like that is is important, but it's always a really fine line to walk. Oh, for sure. So do you ever go to rag houses? Mm. Yeah. Uh, a good friend of ours, Miss Bobby. Yeah. I was going to say that that's where Bobby was sourcing in LA. Yeah. She took me into one. Um, and I've, I've since gone back a few times, but I don't like, we don't have one in Portland. I think the nearest one we had was kind of um, actually, they were an online staple earlier on called the Rusty Zipper. Oh, and you yeah. could buy in bulk from them. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were one of the earlier online retailers. But they also had kind of a warehouse thing where you could go and pick. But uh, there aren't really any in Oregon. So uh, going crazy. down to L.A. and getting to experience those. I mean, I feel like they've come into the lexicon a bit more over the last couple of years, especially with some loud dealers with tv series 
So just to be clear, they're not for the general public. Like, right. You have to have a license, not a license, like a reseller certificate, I think. Yeah. 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 You have to be, well, a reseller or like bare minimum, like, I mean, cause other, like you'll see fashion designers and stuff go into them too, to pick for inspiration. So I think, uh, it's just a business ID tax, mm-hmm. uh, tax ID or EIN. Mm-hmm. And then they're by appointment. So you have to have like contact with them first. You have to kind of have a file with them and then you make appointments and they're pretty strict on those. They'll have like a customer limit. So like it might just be two people per business per appointment. And then there's no photographing anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think they all have different rules, but I think kind of the better ones, the bigger ones, the more established ones, you're going to have more rules. Mm -hmm. But it's nuts in there. I mean, it's bales and pallets and you see employees like real time unpacking pallets and putting them on hangers and they're not processed. So it's almost like the bins, Mm -hmm. except you have the people like taking them out of the pallets and then putting them on hangers. And then you go through the organized racks of stuff. Okay. Some other ones, like they'll have it where the pallets are just open and you kind of dig through them. And that's a workout and exhausting. It's like the bins, but then you're diving in. <laughs> it sounds kind of fun though. <laughs> it is. I mean, it is. It's like, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. And then exci- it's just like the bins. I would say anytime you're buying kind of wholesale, it's mm-hmm. overwhelming, it's magical and intimidating all at the same time. Um, so one thing about vintage though, is I can see that some people can get addicted to it. Like it's got a rush. There's a rush when you find something amazing. Mm -hmm. There's a rush when you sell something. There's a rush when you sell to a famous buyer and you have to keep it cool or like, I don't know. It's just all kinds of energy exchanges that get really intense. But the picking is very fun. Anytime you're buying wholesale, it's like also on you to do the work in there and to find any natural lighting in the room to like make sure something doesn't have crazy stains or doesn't have some huge rip. It's all sales final. And then once you get out of there, if you can't mend it or, you know, get that stain out, which sometimes has been a make or break for me. It it must be challenging to balance because you want to pick as much stuff as possible, right? But you also want to inspect it. (laughs) Yeah, you want to make sure it's quality. But Because also when you go through the checkout process with them, they've got one person that's then saying like, okay, that's a $10 item. That's a $20 item. That's a $100 item. That's a $400 item. So you don't even know. When you take it up, you might not even know. You might not even know. Yeah, because they don't have... I mean, sometimes they'll like, uh, if it's one of the ones that like, say does the Rose Bowl, Mm -hmm. some of their items might be tagged, but it might be like 25% of the items have tags because they're in the Rose Bowl queue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a weird place. And, uh, and then also like if you peek behind the scenes when you're at the bins and you look behind the doors as they're coming in the room or whatever, it's a similar thing of bales of pre-sorted clothing mm-hmm. and that's where that global rag trade comes in and that just blows my mind oh my god i don't understand how you know what like 20 years ago somebody just like bailed up a store's dead stock 
and then put it in a warehouse for 20, 40 years. Like I, I don't know. That's, that's the, that's the part of it that blows. It, it does. It does. The fact I, I talk about too all the time, like the fact that we still find dead stock from like the 50s, 60s and 70s also blows my it's, mind. Like that's yeah. how much stuff there is in Western yeah. countries. There's so much stuff. But then if we're talking about them shipping it off to other countries and then it winding up in their landfills like in Africa or like if it gets shredded up and put in car seats. Yeah. Then where, you know, will we keep finding this I don't stuff? know. That's a good question. It's fascinating. And I remember like I've talked to a lot of older dealers and I guess back in the 60s, that's when vintage started coming back in because I guess at that time they were taking stuff that was from the twenties and refashioning it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that kind of original boho thing was taking old twenties textiles and mixing it in or getting into patchwork and kind of taking these cues from the past. And so to me, in my mind, that's always where I think of like people really reusing in a fashionable Mm -hmm. way, old clothing. Mm -hmm. Which I, I love that, you know, the new stuff can't be reused anymore because it's terrible, you know? Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. So so if they're taking old clothes and throwing them away or shredding them, mm-hmm. you know, these new clothes aren't going to be the ones that like sustain us the way the true vintage does. Yeah, that's true. So that's a scary thought of like what happens if that ever dries up. I know. I had not thought of that until now. But that's really scary. Really? Especially with talking to you last time about you know, the shredding <laughs> that just bums me out the most. Like thinking that I, there could be some epic seventies t-shirt that's all shredded up in my car seat makes me want to cry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. It's kind of crazy. I mean, I guess it's good that stuff is being used, right? But is there an edit before that happens? Like, I, that's something I thought about a lot. Like, Obviously, some of the stuff is being sorted, but how carefully? And, you know, right. like, I bet that's not a fun job. I bet you're not looking super closely. I mean, I feel like a lot of the times when I see people processing clothes at the thrift store and stuff, like, you know, I feel like then if if you start catching on to what you're processing, then you've graduated out of that position. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Because then you're also going to want the stuff and they can't have you cutting into their profits. Are the rag houses the people that have the huge booths at the Rose Bowl? Yeah. Because there's a yeah. couple. There's like one where you go right when you first enter the clothing area and it's like massive. Yeah. And you're like, t-shirts are yeah. only 10 bucks a piece. And these are great, true vintage t-shirts, single stitch and ringer and rag. Yeah, and- it's crazy. Oh, I miss the Rose Bowl so Me much. Me too. I mean, I, I'd go in and I'd, I'd gather up a bunch of shirts and I'd be like, okay, but since I'm buying so many, can we squeak them down to like <laughs> eight bucks a pop? You know, always haggling. But that's what you have to do. You have to negotiate. You have to haggle. And I think that's something that is like a recurring theme on this show is that even when you think like, oh, I'm a designer, I'm not going to need to negotiate. You have to have these negotiation skills, which I think a lot of women were not like taught. Right. And I feel, I mean, even for me, I will negotiate the hell out of a vendor, but like as a buyer, but when I am a customer, I'm like, oh, it's okay. I'll just pay the price on the tag. It's fine. You know, I'm like so uncomfortable with it. Okay. So as a flea vendor myself, 
I softball pitch pricing to people. Like I don't always like to have price tags on things because I kind of want the discussion. Mm -hmm. I want to tell you why I want what I want for it. But I'll also say it in a softball way where I am flexible on the price. And I'll say, well, I was hoping for this price. And I kind of softball to let people into haggling a bit because sometimes I do find people are very uncomfortable about it. And I hate when when I do have price tags, someone just looks at a price tag and just walks away. Uh, like I want to engage in a discussion, yeah, you know, yeah. I want you to say like, I want to say like, oh, well I price that because it's a true seventies. It's not a reprint, da, 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 you know, but I'll say I was hoping for this price. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, oh, would you take, you know, so, but I also see how people come in rolling hard. Like they need a discount. They are going to demand a lower price and it becomes really tricky. Um, so that's a good question. Uh, yeah. I have a question for you as the customer, because I okay. think it's probably behooves all of us yes. who work on our haggling skills. Yeah. For you as a seller, what is the maximum discount we could ask for that wouldn't piss you off? <laughs> well, so, okay. So one, one thing that will ease the burden of, or the, the harshness of any haggle is how many garments are you buying? What are you buying from this vendor? Are you just asking for that one item deeply discounted? You're, you might be a jerk, you know? Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> so, you know, if like I said, with those t-shirts, like if I'm going up and I'm like, hey, I want 20 t-shirts, cut me a deal. Like that's one thing, you know, but if you're going into a situation and you see they have a, I don't know, like uh, $200 Mongolian fur jacket. Right. And mm -hmm. you're like, Oh man, that's really amazing. I know those go for 400 online. 200 seems like a good price tag. What would you want to pay for it? Like, what would you go in being like, Hmm, is that a bad item? I mean, I for me, know. like if I saw something like that, I would be like, wow, $200 is a really fair price. And I would just pay it. You know what I mean? Okay. <laughs> I mean, frankly, it kind of is. Because if you look at what they sell for online, that's a screen. I know. Deal. And I think that is also, I mean, something we talk about a lot on the show is that our concept of how much things should cost is so skewed by fast fashion and mm -hmm. this culture of everything always right. being on sale. And I think people think that vintage should all, and I'm not saying all people, and I'm certainly not this person, people think vintage should be cheaper than new stuff, which first off is impossible yeah. when we know Wrong. how cheap new stuff is, right? But also because the stuff is unique. It is better made. Yeah. It will last longer. And so I right. often will, I mean, I can tell when someone is trying to scam me for sure, but if I saw a really nice coat and like the lining wasn't messed up, and it was like 200 bucks, I'd be like, yeah. I mean, this thing has stood right. the test of time already. It doesn't look like it's going to need much uh, like tweaking by me. Like $200 is a hot deal. Well, so I, I would say like if you want to if you want to approach the vendor with an offer, um, I mean, it's, it's dicey once again. You kind of want to like not be too much of a dick, but <laughs> there's always kind of a starting off point right. where you're like, oh, you know, I – would you consider is a good phrase to use or? Mm, I like that. I'm like, okay, so would you consider? Would you consider this price and then expect a median price return, like mm -hmm. a counter offer, you know? So you're saying, okay. oh, I'd really like, what about 150? And they're like, 
How about 175? And that okay. should usually be a pretty okay deal on something, but sometimes they might just be like hard no. It really depends on the vendor and it really depends on your approach. Like if you come in hot and just demanding and expect something. <laughs> good luck. I mean, I agree. If I was the seller, I'd be like, get out of here. I'm so yeah. sick of rude people. Yeah. Or, and, <laughs> and I mean, like I have a friend and they sell really amazing clothes and sh- she sells them cheap, you know, like she'll have a good mm-hmm. 1950s plain blank white t-shirt, which, you know, I feel like the standard price on those at Rose Bowl and stuff is about 50 bucks. And she had it at Portland Flea for 30 bucks. And she has somebody be like, would you take 15? Ugh. And she's like, it's $30. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. And, and if you think about it, like that fifties t-shirt is really beautiful combed cotton. And like, what are you going to buy that for new more than $30 probably? Or if you pay 15 for it, it's a POS from like the sales section at old Navy. Like, Oh yeah, for look sure. At what, look at what you're asking for, you know, but some people are also just pretty tactless and gross. Yeah. Yeah. And once again, like our concept of what things cost is so messed up. Right. That you have to like take a step back and really think about like, what is, what is it that I'm looking at? Yeah. So it's like, make a reasonable ask, assess what it is, and if it's already a good value, and be nice. Yeah, be nice. I mean, I've also had like, I mean, I was selling a Sonic Youth tea on Etsy recently, and it was the washing machine tea, which is pretty common, but it was an actual um, late 80s, early 90s shirt, single stitch you could tell by the mm-hmm. tags that it wasn't a reprint, but I definitely had some people counter offering on line and they would, then when I would like hold pretty strong, cause I also had a price lower than what a lot of other ones online were. And some of the other mm-hmm. ones were newer reprint were like late Y2K reprints. Yeah. And she got snappy with me and was like, come on, help us this out. And like, it doesn't even have a back print. <laughs> And I was like, okay, the only one online that does is $500. And that's because it's a tour tee. Calm down. But also like, don't come at me with an attitude when I'm like, I haven't even had it listed for 24 hours. And you know, what's worth that. Look at what all the others are priced at. Yeah. Anyway. So like, don't come in hot. Don't come in rude. (laughs) (laughs) And be, be aware. Like what, but also what's the worst thing that happens is they say no and be prepared for that. And like, it's okay. It's okay. Like, yeah, we, people work hard for their shit and they want to make money. Like they're, it's their job. That's another thing too, is like people that sell vintage aren't just like, I'm just, you know, I mean, some people do it just for fun, but a lot of the people like schlepping shit down to the Rose bowl and like, they're up at like, they're in there at like three in the morning. Uh huh. They're working. Like, don't act like oh, it's just yeah. some, like, oh, well, you just found that. And you're like, okay, this is years of self-education and hard work. And cleaning. Cleaning. You to clean the stuff, mending. Inspect the stuff. Yeah. I know when you would have to do laundry, it was like a whole thing. Like, I remember yeah. your laundry days. So, I, I mean, once again, it just goes back to this idea of people not understanding what they're paying for. Right. It's not just the clothing. It's your hard work to get it there. Right. You know, like somebody's like, oh, I don't like paying 150 or more for a rock tee. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, go to Forever 21 and buy that reprint and leave me alone. 
you know, you <laughs> yeah. either you either want like the shredded, like paper thin original, or you want a like crispy reprint. And don't at me, bro. <laughs> Thank you, Christine, for being such a great guest. She'll be back for our next episode where we'll talk about all kinds of stuff, including sizeism in the vintage clothing scene and the sort of science and art behind how she prices things and so much more. This is turning into a super long episode, but I did just want to touch on rag houses just a tiny bit more because 80% of the clothing donated each year ends up at one of these rag houses. 80%, guys. And you know what? When you consider that each American throws out or donates around 68 pounds of clothing each year, well, that means a lot of stuff is heading to these rag houses. I don't even want to do the math right now because I'm way too tired from moving. Private companies buy these excess donations, which I feel like saying the phrase excess donations is like the understatement of the millennium, but they buy these excess donations from thrift stores and charities for about 25 cents per pound. These mountains of unwanted clothes are then sorted on an industrial scale by fabric, brand, type of garment, and they usually end up in three places, either recycled into rags and wiping cloths or sent off to be shredded. That's one possible destination for your clothes. Next, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, they could be bailed up and shipped out to the developing world, or this is the last one. This is kind of what Christine's been talking about in this episode. The items that are deemed the most valuable are sold to vintage and consignment stores. So it's not all vintage. Some of it is just secondhand. And the people doing this sorting are experts. They have to know what is valuable to sell here and what has value overseas. So they have to know about fabric, they have to know about brands, and they even have to know about trends. Which trends are over, which ones are back, they have to have an eye for all of that. And the brand is really important to them. For example, several articles I read about this industry mentioned that literally no one wants to buy Forever 21 or H&M clothes secondhand. So most of those are being shredded up and turned to rags. Now, some rag houses might try to sell these overseas, but previous research I've done shows that most of that ends up in landfills as well, just on other continents. And this same landfill or shredding fate is awaiting clothes from Zara, Old Navy, and Fashion Nova. These also have no resale value. So once again, retailers and brands are selling us clothing that only lasts a few wears. Wears, guys, not years. These are clothes that are destined to become rags when we're done with them because their quality is so low that no one would even want to invest a couple of dollars to buy it secondhand because they don't think they would get enough wear out of it. It's an entire industry that is literally just selling us future garbage. And yet it's a massive industry. You know, executives are getting rich. Shareholders are getting dividends. Meanwhile, garment workers, retail workers, and warehouse workers are living in poverty. It's just so broken. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Change begins with us.
Huge companies are doing just fine with the current system. They don't need it to change. They don't want to make a change unless they see a dip in sales. And that's where we come in because we buy less, especially less fast fashion. And we try to buy things that will last from brands and makers that sell things that last, not just get turned into rags after a few months. We can do this. We can make it better. Thanks for listening to another episode of Clothes Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And you know what? Tell a friend. I personally always value a podcast recommendation way more than anything I see when I'm searching on Apple Podcasts or that an algorithm is recommending to me. So tell everyone else. They'll listen too. And thank you to everyone who has been sharing our content, sending nice messages, and leaving reviews. Hearing from you always makes my day better, and it makes me feel like I'm really getting something done here. So thank you. Do you have an episode suggestion, a burning question, just want to say hi or share a story of your own? You can either email me at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at clotheshorsepodcast. And don't forget, if you love listening to me talk, and I'm sure you do, (laughs) then you should check out my other podcast, The Department. I co-host it with my friend, Kim. We talk about trends, taste, weird stuff from our lives, things we're obsessing about, and so on. This week, we have our first ever very special guest. It's Ty McBride from Intentionally Blank, and he's literally one of the most magical people I've ever known. He's going to tell us all about his rise from aspiring shoe dog to founder of Intentionally Blank. And if you want to know what a shoe dog is, well, you'll have to listen to the episode. As always, special thanks to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. This week is our four-year wedding anniversary, and it's been a wild and crazy four years. We always like to joke, did anyone in the audience at our wedding see the pandemic coming? Maybe we're the only family that's joking about pandemics, but anyway, (laughs) until the next episode, bye. Bye.